Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In December, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, in conjunction with a nationwide contingent of scientists, published a report that explores pathways to permanently remove carbon dioxide from Earth's atmosphere on the way to reaching a net zero carbon economy. The report, titled Roads to Removal, Options for Carbon Dioxide Removal in the United States, provides a granular, county-by-county look at the potential for atmospheric carbon to be captured and stored across the U.S. One chapter of the report, which we'll focus on today, considers the reality that the best places for carbon to be captured and stored are frequently not the same, and that as a result, carbon will need to be transported at scale, potentially over great distances, to locations where it can be permanently buried underground. Today's guests are two authors of the chapter that explores the infrastructural and economic considerations that will accompany the development of a national transportation network for carbon dioxide and the related climate commodity, biomass. Pete Saris is a research assistant professor in chemical and biomedical engineering at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hélène Pilorget is a research associate whose work focuses on carbon management. The two will explore the geography of carbon removal and storage, the challenging logistics of a future multimodal carbon transportation network, and how that network might be most economically built. Hélène and Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. So you two worked on a recent report called Roads to Removal. Tell us about that report and what issues are explored. Sure. I think you covered a bit. It's a report that explores various carbon removal options across the U.S. Why are we involved? So just take it back a few years. We did an analysis with, again, Lawrence Livermore on California, right, titled Getting to Neutral California. And, you know, it's simple premise. You've got a state with a net zero goal. Like many goals, you know, making the claim is one thing. You really need to kind of outline an actual plan to get there. And so you take a look at the state. You take a look at the the resources available. You take a look at the CDR technologies. And really, that space is so vast and growing and really exciting and robust field right now. And then you can decide which of these approaches make sense, which don't, and sort of develop a, a merit order of sorts. Right. Well, the, the report received rave reviews. We, we received the Secretary's Achievement Award, which was really kind of a cool thing. That's the Secretary of Energy. Yeah, Secretary of Energy. So it's uh, you know kind of validating, but the, the great response. It is an intuitive and compelling exercise to do. You should do this potentially for every state. Why not? And so you sort of see the motivation for why this is necessary at a national level. And I think you kind of explore not only kind of other regions and how these. Conclusions might transfer and not transfer. You also recognize that there might be a lot of interstate cooperation in this whole thing, right? So the birth of the road to removal idea kind of, again, through Livermore, you know, expanded this on steroids, really. 20-some institutions and national labs across the U.S., various expertise coming together all across the carbon removal value chain. You know, a lot of government support there from, you know, uh, Department of Energy, Office of Efficiency and Renewable Energy, Bioenergy Technology Office, ARPA-E, and of course, the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management, uh, all supportive of this. And the report, it's free, and, and it covers, you know, 
a number of chapters, you know, we, we took some technologies that we thought and approaches that we thought were viable. Yeah, you had to draw a line at some point, right? Uh, what we think there's enough data, right? So we wanted to make sure we were at county level resolution. And so we kind of came up with some nature-based solutions. So you have forest management, you have storage and soils, but you also have engineered approaches like direct air capture and bikers, which, you know, we may explore in a little bit. Plus, you know, what we did, which is where the downstream aspect, which has much lesser scholarship in terms of transport and where to actually store the carbon dioxide that you're capturing. But then it expands even further. You know, you've got things like cross-cutting themes that ex examine resource needs and environmental impacts. And those are super important. And of course, like throughout the report, huge focus on energy equity and environmental justice, which is really necessary to ensure that we're, we're doing this in just deployment fashion, right? And so, you know, you've got basically 22 regions of the U.S. and conclusions, just like that original California report. It is really quite a feat and, and quite a resource. And I say, you know, kudos to the entire team, but especially Jennifer Petridge, who just had impeccable leadership. She, she's this senior staff scientist at Livermore. And I'll just say, we, we realize it's only a snapshot, but it, and it won't be the last of these we ever do. But we are really quite excited about it. So, Pete, so broadly, the report is about carbon dioxide removal. The chapter that you two have worked on that you wrote together with another group looks at the need for transportation infrastructure for carbon dioxide that is captured. Before we get a little bit more deeply into that issue of transportation, Elen, could you tell us why CDR, carbon dioxide removal, is so important itself? So carbon dioxide removal is part of a portfolio of carbon management approaches. The U.S. has the goal to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, and CDR is part of the solution to reach net zero. The U.S. is emitting today about 6 billion tons of CO2 equivalent per year, and these emissions can be reduced or captured by different ways. So first, you can reduce the emission by replacing fossil fuel power plants by renewable energy source or increasing the efficiency of buildings and industrial processes or also replacing cars with internal combustion engines by electric vehicles. But there are some sectors that are more difficult to abate. So this is, for instance, industries that have process emissions. So process emissions are these emissions that come from uh, chemical reactions that are happening when you're producing different types of material like cement, lime, steel, chemicals, and others. So I'm going to take the example of cement to make that clear. So in the cement industry, you burn limestone, which is CaCO3. And when you burn it, it produces lime, CaO, and it has a byproduct that is CO2. So that chemical reaction itself produces uh, the carbon dioxide. And these process emissions can be partly addressed by capturing CO2 emission directly at the facility with carbon capture, storage, and utilization approaches. There are other sectors like aviation, shipping, and agriculture that are small distributed sources of greenhouse gases that are also difficult to uh, abate and to capture from the source. And added up together, all these small distributed sources represent a significant part of the U.S. carbon budget. So this is where CDR has a role to play. 
it can be used to bridge the gap between these remaining emissions and the goal of net zero emissions by removing the excess CO2 released in the atmosphere by uh, human activities. So again, we're going to need transportation to move some portion of this carbon dioxide from where it is captured to where it can be stored. And as Ellen, you and Pete have both already mentioned, there are two primary uh, means of capturing carbon dioxide that the report considers, and that would be the source of the carbon dioxide that would need to be transported by the networks that you will be discussing. Those two methods are DAC, direct air capture, and BIKERS, which is bioenergy with carbon removal and storage. Pete, wonder if you could dive in and tell us what those two are and how they are different. These are two engineered approaches that we do consider, you know, other more natural or in nature, we refer to those as nature-based approaches. But if we look at the kind of the, the, these two that are going to be generating pure streams of CO2, then would have that transport and storage implications, right? Starting with that, direct air capture. I like to think of it as just vacuuming CO2 out of the air, though it's not physically what's happening. I think it's illustrative enough. Think of large engineered machines with kind of these large intakes and you get ambient air coming in one side and you've got carbon dioxide in the air, albeit very dilute. And that's part of the problem um, that is such a dilute target, but all, all the same still wreaking havoc at that, even at that dilution. And then that will interact with some specialized chemistry and Basically, out the back end, you get less CO2 emitting or back into the atmosphere. So it's kind of a simple process. It's not not new by any means. I think you know NASA has been removing CO2 from kind of space chambers for, for decades. We just never done it at this scale. We're excited to see the space growing. I think you know 10, 15 years ago, we would say you know why would you do this? You should just block it at the source. We still feel that way, but I think our hand has become sort of forced today. A technology, in fact, that emerged from our lab, Heirloom in Noah McQueen recently became one of the first commercial or the first commercial direct air capture plant in the United States in Tracy, California. So super excited about that. And then the other, you mentioned I'm bike. I'm not sure I understand. Oh, thanks, Siri. <laughs> Great, <laughs> there it goes. A little, a little cameo. Siri's got some expertise here to share. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other technology you mentioned, bikers, this stands for biomass with carbon removal and storage. This is sort of the new, but dare I say preferred acronym. I think people are probably more familiar with the former, which is BEX, bioenergy, with carbon capture and storage. And there's a subtle but important difference in those two. BEX would be sort of considered a a, a subset of bikers, right? And I think that bikers is then much more expansive in terms of using biomass for carbon removal. And this all hinges on something that's known as the Ains principle, which was actually coined after Roger Ains who happens to be, you know, one of the leaders of the project from Lawrence Livermore. And it's it's actually an economic argument that, that, that simply states that, you know, at a certain carbon price, the value of using biomass for removing carbon from the atmosphere may exceed the value of using biomass for energy. So kind of like in summary, you're saying, you know, is the conversion of biomass into energy the best use here? Biker says there's other opportunities. And so hence a more expansive definition. Well, that's interesting because when you think about BEX, you've got a product, right? You've got an energy product that you can get a revenue stream out of. With the broader bikers, if you're not using it as a product, the carbon dioxide, 
where does the revenue come from if, if revenue is a critical component of this? Well, it's important. Like, bikers is still producing a product. It just might not be energy per se. You may produce maybe a bio oil. Uh, you may be pyrolyzing to uh, other forms. Maybe you're yielding sustainable aviation fuel or hydrogen, right? So there is that co-product that has a revenue stream. But really what, what Bikers is, is kind of insinuating is that there is value actually in the CO2, right? That is the product. And you could get some incentive, and we're seeing incentive to store carbon dioxide, that that may be more valuable in the long run than the co-product that you're producing. So, Len, coming back to you. So the challenge here, one of the related challenges is that bikers and DAC may not be located in the same place where the storage facility would be, underground storage. What are the geographic limitations on the storage of carbon dioxide? And where is storage potential greatest in this country? Our limitation for carbon storage that are mainly due to the geology of the subsurface. So one storage technique that was investigated in depth in this report is in-situ storage in sedimentary rock formations. So this is when you inject CO2 underground and it's trapped into a sedimentary formation. So the way it works, and it has been working for millions of years for uh, oil and gas, is that uh, you can picture the subsurface as a Napoleon pastry with pastry with all its layers. Uh, so the sedimentary formations are a series of permeable and impermeable layers. In the permeable rocks, you can trap materials like uh, oil, gas, brine, but also carbon dioxide. And this is where uh, the CO2 can be injected and stored. And the impermeable layers of that formation act as a seal to prevent CO2 to rise back up at the surface and back up to the atmosphere. So this succession of layers, permeable and impermeable, effectively traps CO2 underground. There are also other options that were not investigated in detail in the report and that are also viable storage options. And this can help finding a closer storage option when the CO2 is sourced from DAC and bikers. So CO2 can be stored underground in basalts. These are abundant in the Pacific Northwest. And CO2 can also be reacted with a number of feedstock to form carbonates and lock the carbon dioxide in a mineral form. So these feedstock have to be poor in carbon and rich in calcium and magnesium. These are, for instance, mafic and ultramafic rocks, mined for purpose, uh, mine tailings with mafic and ultramafic composition, industrial byproducts such as steel slag, fly ash, or uh, cement kiln dust. And so in the United States, um, the areas that have been identified for geologic CO2 storage are uh, along the Gulf Coast up to Arkansas, in the Central Valley in California, in the Mount Simons Formation under Michigan, Illinois, or Indiana, and on the East Coast from southern New Jersey to North Carolina, but really on that coastal part. 
So the areas where there is underground storage are pretty much set in stone. And excuse my pun, or whatever you would consider <laughs> that, right? Okay, that's a great one. So, so you can't really change those. But theoretically, I guess you could cite the DAC, the direct air capture machinery, the technology anywhere you want. They're just a bunch of machines. But you know, that's in an ideal world. Yet this really isn't always possible or even preferable. Pete, can you tell us why? Yeah, I mean, it, you hit it on the head. I think that's the, the argument we see. You know, the atmosphere is everywhere. So the argument is, well, well, then why would you ever place DAC where there isn't storage, right? And the answer to that is you need just enormous amounts of energy to power direct air capture. And that needs to be renewable energy if you want the carbon math to pencil off correctly. And so you, you realize the storage map isn't the only one that you need here, right? You need a second map in, in kind of that renewable energy viability, like where those zones economic, where is transmission infrastructure likely, right? And that all has impact as well. Well, you really need a third, fourth, fifth map beyond that when you bring in equity, environmental justice concerns, and you need to bring those in here. So the point is that there, there are many layers here that when, when you add them all up, you result in a far more constrained picture than it might have originally appeared. You know, bikers, same extent, that biomass you know, is, is disparate, right? You, you've got sources, municipal salt waste, you've got agricultural residue, forest residue. While these are sort of everywhere, you know, they may not also be co-located, so you might have to move something. So, Ellen, what is the actual scale of carbon dioxide and biomass that we're contemplating here that needs to actually be processed and transported and stored? How, how much is out there? So the overall estimate that we have for biomass is about 900 million tons that would have to be processed. And for CO2, it's in the order of magnitude of a billion ton per year. But then because we can collocate some of these processes, like the biomass harvesting, the processing, the CO2 capture and the CO2 storage, the amounts that need to be transported are uh, less than the overall estimate. So the order of magnitude at which biomass and CO2 has to be transported, it's in the order of magnitude of hundreds of millions of tons for both communities. So for the transport of CO2, it is equivalent to what is transported right now for uh, hazardous class 2 liquids. CO2 is within that category of hazardous material, uh, which also includes diesel fuel and methanol, for instance. For the transport of biomass, hundreds of millions of tons are equivalent to uh, the amount of biomass that is transported today for uh, corn ethanol industry and for the pulp and paper industry combined. So these transportation networks already exist to some extent. They're not completely new, but I'm gathering here that it would be, I'm not sure about the numbers here, a doubling, tripling, or what order of magnitude of additional build-out would be needed for the new carbon dioxide and biomass that we're considering to actually be transported? How, how much bigger does this network need to get compared to what it is today? Well, this also depends on what is the use of the network today and what will be the use of that network in the future. If you look at the coal industry, for instance, it's declining more and more. And coal is one of the commodities that is the most transported in the U.S. So looking into that commodity, biomass and CO2 could replace some of that capacity, that coal capacity that is transported right now. Yeah. And I'll just chime in on, on that. You know, we, we recently found if you consider all of the coal that's moved via rail, in the country and that that we have an aggressive transition away from that 
if you were just as a thought experiment, going to replace all of that coal freight with CO2 on rail, you could achieve 100 million tons without creating an additional line, right? So there, there are opportunities. If you look at pipeline today, you're about 50 million tons, right? So we're, we're going to be moving, you know, a fair amount more than that, but not the you know, orders and orders of magnitude, you know, trucking moves about 10 million tons today. Rail as it exists moves about one. All right. So, you know, there, there are opportunities here. We may need to create new infrastructure, but yeah, let's uh, agree. Let's look at existing infrastructure and see if we can't repurpose. So I want to jump in here. This is an important point. So, so we've been talking about kind of, by the way, about pipelines. We've been talking about trucking. We've been talking about rail. And that gets to the next question I have for you, which addresses the fact that this is a multimodal transportation solution that you are considering uh, or looking at for the transport, again, of biomass and carbon dioxide. And the types of transport that will be used really comes down to the logistics of that transportation modality as well as the costs. So, Pete, tell us what, again, are all of the options that we're looking at here and what are the relative economics of each? Let's start with the major one, right? You mentioned pipeline. A huge focus here, really the major and I, I dare say only focus for, for years, you know, IPCC and other reports, if you look at the transportation chapter, really pipeline and really little, little else. I mean, for the reasons that might appear obvious to the audience, the economics of, of really massive pipeline are, are quite impossible to beat, right? You're talking about, you know, and I'll throw some numbers out in a second, but these other modes aren't really as competitive. I think a reader of the report would be, though, surprised to, to learn that some of these modes particularly the kind of bulk transport modes like barge, which is you know moving via waterways and, and rail freight transport, can actually close the gap more than what like perhaps we were letting on in the literature. Uh, and then you have trucking that I mentioned before, which is sort of kind of a, a villain for lower scales, right? For smaller scales. Yeah, there's those modes that sort of, you know, isolated, but the reality is, is the you may need multimodal configurations in many from the logistics standpoint. For example, you may not be on a rail line, right? Those aren't everywhere. And you may need to truck that first leg to a terminal and the last leg, kind of known as first mile, last mile transport. So we realized that it, it can become more, more complicated. The costs, and you have to be careful talking about costs as an academic. Uh, you know, we're really good at kind of just kind of getting those formulae out. But in reality, you know, they're certain escalators that I could mention, but I think generally it's safe to say that, again, these massive trunk pipelines are going to be the cheapest, followed really by barge, rail, and then trucking in that order. And if you wanted numbers, you know, you're looking at about, and we like to speak in terms of ton miles, basically the cost to move one ton of a commodity by one mile. And, you know, those massive trunk pipelines can get down to a cent. Uh, you know, you're talking about a penny to move a ton of CO2 a mile, that looks pretty good. But if you're going a you know, thousand miles, you know, it starts to add up, of course. Barge is around two to three, rail four to five, and then trucking's kind of up there at 18. But again, the multimodal configurations sort of change things. And there are actually crossovers. Uh, one thing I should mention is we didn't consider these sort of smaller pipelines in the report at all. And there's kind of an important reason there, you know, since we... We're kind of reading the tea leaves, what's happening in, in Iowa, Midwest, right? 
are we, you know, there's 250 tributaries that feed the Mississippi, right? That's sort of what you're asking with these smaller pipelines. Do you really imagine these, that there'd be public license, social license to kind of run these all over the place? Well, we just didn't think that was realistic. So we didn't include those. But if you did, those very small pipelines are actually cost competitive. In fact, there's a crossover point at which trucking becomes more economic. So it becomes interesting there, right? One thing I will just say really quickly is that, you know, again, the, the danger is the actual pricing is different for, for many reasons. One being that, you know, a freight or service provider may hold you captive. We call this ballpark pricing, right? Why are you paying $14 for a hot dog at a ball game? You know, I take my kid to the concession stand. I drop 40 without blinking. I'm like, what just happened? Know about that. Yep. Right. Well, if you have that, that happens in the transport industry as well. So kind of one of the nice things about actually adding options, you actually have some leverage to walk into those negotiations because, you know, then there's going to put a ceiling on what they can actually charge. One interesting part of this puzzle as well is deciding when biomass should be transported as biomass or first converted into carbon dioxide and then transported. What, what are the considerations here? This is a really interesting question to me. And, and the question is, okay, yeah, I've got this biomass resource. And let's just say, for example, it isn't co-located with storage, which you can see the report that is often the case. And this could be like agricultural waste, forestry waste, right. stuff like that. Is that right? Municipal solid waste, right? Yeah, a number of different sources and a number of different locations. Bikers, right, that we covered says that we're going to convert that into some some value source plus a co-product stream of carbon dioxide that can be stored, right? Where do you do that conversion though? And so this is the question. You could do it at the location of the biomass, so the source, and, and that's totally doable. You just have to now transport that CO2 via some mode to the nearest storage basin, right? Or you could put all that biomass into covered hoppers or on trucks and truck that to the nearest storage basin and do the conversion right then and there. And then you don't have to move the CO2 anywhere. You can just send it right underground. Right? But if you follow that, you're always moving something. You're not going to get out of movement. It's just, you know, which is cheaper. And interestingly, you might, you might add, uh, well, why not put the conversion process halfway between? It is always cheaper to do it in one of the bookends, right? Never cheaper to do it in between. So, you know, the question then becomes, do you convert at the source or do you move the biomass? And the answer is, it's complicated, of course. And that's because bikers, and again, part of the point of that new acronym is that there are so many different options. I mean, really, we cover, I think, like something like 26 different conversion technologies in the report. And we talked about a, a few of them, hydrogen, you know, pyrolysis, or, you know, conversion to sustainable aviation fuel. You can convert it right into a bio oil and inject that underground. There's a company called Charm that does this. Each one of these conversion technologies generates a different amount of CO2 per unit biomass, right? So if you're on kind of the, the one end of that spectrum where you're not generating a lot of CO2 in that conversion, you might choose to move that CO2 since it's actually not going to cost you a lot to do that. You're not needing to move a lot. On the other end of the spectrum, something like hydrogen, which generates a lot of CO2 per unit biomass, you may want to then instead move the biomass and then convert in place so you don't have to deal with all that CO2 movement. So it's an it's interesting optimization problem. 
you know, I also want to note here that there's some non-economic and non-logistical challenges that are also important to consider in, you know, developing and thinking about these transportation pathways, going to issues such as environmental justice as well. Ellen, could you introduce us to some of these other issues that also have to be taken into consideration? So first, CO2 is a hazardous material. It has been classified as a class 2.2. So it means that it's non-toxic and a non-flammable gas. And for transportation, it is compressed into a dense liquid phase. At high concentration in the air, uh, CO2 can be an asphyxiant. So it has to be manipulated in well-ventilated area where it can get diluted in the air so it doesn't endanger any person that is handling it. Just to make sure, so you're saying that if it's dilute, it's not toxic, but if it is highly concentrated, then it can be. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And also, if large quantities of CO2 are released uh, at once, the decompression of CO2 can result in the formation of dry ice. And also, CO2 is denser than air, so it will tend to accumulate at low points. Another point is that DOT is keeping track of uh, the incidents that are related to uh, CO2 leakage. And when we look at this data, we show that there are like very little number of incidents that are actually releasing uh, CO2. It's about 20 incidents per year over the past 20 years. And half of these released are less than 10 kilograms of CO2. So really small quantities that would be diluted in the air quite fast. And so it's like minimum risk. Then these quantities released can be limited by the type of transport that you're using. Uh, For the trucking, the containers are 20 tons. And for rail, the containers are 100 tons of CO2. And so the maximum release that can happen is the size of the container. The largest spill that can happen is with pipelines. And we have the case of the Denbury pipelines uh, that ruptured in Mississippi in 2020, and that released several thousand tons of CO2. This shows that the risk for CO2 leakage is really small. There still need to be uh, regulations on the handling of CO2 to minimize the risks. I also want to talk about uh, the benefits and trade-off to community to have CO2 transported through uh, the community. It can uh, increase the tax revenues. It can also increase direct and indirect jobs related to transportation, but that can also be a source of inequity because we know that pipelines have been historically routed through disenfranchised community, and it would be good to not repeat the same mistakes from the past while routing CO2 pipelines. Comparing the different modes of transportation, trucking would be the one that provides the most job, but it's also the one that increased the air pollution the most and the congestions of roads due to increased traffic. So these options all have trade-off, and in the end, it's the communities who have to decide what option suits them the most. You know, I want to ask a related question. We're talking about, you know, the impact on communities. There has to be some oversight. Who exactly or what government agencies at the state or federal level actually have jurisdictional oversight of these, not only of the pipelines, but as well as, you know, the the rail and the seagoing transportation of CO2 and, and biomass? 
So for pipelines, in the case that the pipelines is crossing state line or is going through federal land, it's FERC. So it's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that is handling the permitting process. FERC is not involved if it's an interstate pipeline, though. And then FERC have FERC coordinates uh, federal, state, and local agency to ensure compliance with all regulations. So the agency involved would depend on which land would be impacted by the routing of the pipeline. So it can involve agencies such as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the National Marine Fisheries Service. And if it crosses uh, rivers or if there are endangered species on the route, it can be the Army Corps of Engineers and also the Fish and Wildlife Services. And other agencies can also be involved in the process. That process can also involve other stakeholders like state resources agencies, tribal government, local governments, public interest groups, and private citizens. Pete, I want to jump to you. The Department of Energy has launched what it calls the Carbon Earth Shot, and that effort aims to lower the cost of carbon capture and sequestration based on direct air capture, in this case, to $100 per ton. Why is the $100 target so important, and how much of the total cost ideally is going to be due to transportation? It's a great question. You know, we get this question a lot in terms of why $100. I think I think the target in itself is important for for several reasons, uh, but I don't think it's any secret that you know economic viability continues to stand in the way of widespread deployment of these technologies today. And I think in a way you're likely to gain more public and private investment support if you can demonstrate a clear pathway to viability. But that will include sort of playing out the tape, so to speak. You know, I think we spent so much time focusing on capture costs and reducing those or showing, you know, pathways to those reductions. And that those with the numbers that they're kind of in the public discourse, I think are almost entirely the capture and removing CO2 from the source. So, you know, point taken, what really does happen when you add in transport and storage? We've shown in our research that, you know, these can be quite significant. In fact, you could blow right past the earshot target in transport and storage alone. In the report, we have, for example, storage costs down to $4 per ton, but certainly over 40 uh, and growing, right? Depend on where you're at. And then when you add transport into that, you know, particularly if you're a significant distance over, I'd say, 250 miles, you kind of combine that with some of those economic ton-mile numbers I, I threw out earlier, you could easily add another 50. So, the, you know, there you have it. So it is really important you need to kind of pay attention to the downstream carbon management. I, and we're, we're seeing this as sort of a, a maturation point, really kind of play out that entire value chain, piece it all together and see where you stand. So, Len, ideally, when will all this capacity and the related transportation infrastructure need to be up and running? The goal is to be carbon neutral by mid-century. So in less than 30 years, this infrastructure should be ready if we want to meet our climate goals. Between the route selection, the permitting, and the building of the pipelines, this construction can take several years if there is no public pushback against the project. And these projects can also be accelerated by using existing right-of-ways. So a final question for the two of you. 
we've talked about the challenge of building this transportation infrastructure for carbon dioxide and biomass. A lot of considerations here. What are your, or are there key policy recommendations that you would offer to accelerate this process? Pete, let's start with you. You heard Helen go through all of the parties involved in deciding and permitting. You know, you're going to need massive interagency cooperation, interstate cooperation. There is a fair amount of jurisdictional complexity when you think about it. And that's all very time consumptive. And that's in part why we wanted to add more modes into the mix, you know, give ourselves some some opportunities and flexibility to to work around these, you know. And I think there's an important distinction that that should be made here and could be said very loudly about sort of any approach to climate. And there's there there is a, a clear distinction between on paper solutions and viability on the ground. Right. And we're not fighting this battle on paper. And I think that's where you see a lot of these chokeholds kind of rearing their ugly head, right? For example, there are no federal regulations for CO2 pipelines like there are for natural gas, right? We need clear guidelines for permitting and construction, operation and decommissioning, particularly from a safety standpoint, right? If you compare CO2 and natural gas pipelines, you know, we talked a little bit about eminent domain, right? There's much clearer path for natural gas because that's a public good. There is no public use requirement technically for CO2, right? So, you know, and generally people talk about public use requirement as increasing the general public welfare. Well, I don't think we're quite at the point as a society where we're treating climate and climate mitigation as something that can increase the general public welfare, right? More specifically, you've got things like, uh, you know, modal specific items. We've got the Jones Act. Jones Act is, you know, Basically summarized, there's a number, number of reasons and benefits to it, but it's like ships, when you're transporting from port to port in the U.S., those ships must be U.S. built, owned, and crewed, right? Which can present some delays. It can present some issues and kind of innovation in that. So there could be delays, right? You know, obviously it strengthens national security and maritime industry, but, you know, perhaps that could be revised to, to, to kind of consider carbon dioxide. And in, in rail, we often come across things like the common carrier obligation, right? This refers to the legal duty imposed on certain transportation companies, again, to, to offer services to the general public. So you kind of keep coming back to this bottom line. If this is going to be a general public good, you know, perhaps we need to put more work into advancing that social license, right? And that's, I think, part of the goal of the report. You know, if it starts with transparent storytelling, that's what we set out to do. I think it would be interesting to revitalize the rail industry because I think that can be a viable uh, alternative to pipelines for the time that the pipelines are being built or if pipelines cannot be built. Like what we saw in the Midwest where some pipelines were cancelled, actually most of these ethanol plants are connected to rail already, so they could use uh, rail as a viable option for CO2 transport. I think it would also be interesting for any construction project to uh, mandate the involvement of communities from the start so that the communities are shaping the project with the company together. And that would also limit confrontations and uh, lead to more successful projects. Ellen and Pete, thanks for talking. Thank you. Thank you. 
Today's guests have been Hélène Pilorget and Pete Saris of the University of Pennsylvania's Clean Energy Conversions Laboratory. Visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for more episodes of Energy Policy Now, as well as the latest energy policy research blogs and events from the center. To easily keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Our web address is climbmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a good day.